Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Grace Wan, in for Alexis Madrigal. One in five Americans cares for a family member suffering from a health or disability issue. And as people live longer, the type of care required has become more demanding and more complex. Caregiving can be deeply fulfilling, bringing one closer to a family member when they need it the most. But providing care, which includes giving baths and personal care, handling finances and medications, or sitting with a loved one experiencing their worst moment, it can all be a lot. We'll talk with experts about how to care for the caregivers. That's all coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Grace Wan, in for Alexis Madrigal. As First Lady Rosalind Carter famously observed, there are only four kinds of people in the world. Those who have been caregivers those who are currently caregivers, those who will be caregivers, and those who will need a caregiver. Despite its universality, caregiving often falls through the cracks of the healthcare system, and caregiving takes a toll. A recent California study found that over 60% of caregivers in the state report feeling depressed, and 22% of caregivers experience severe loneliness. It's obvious, but worth stating, caregivers need care too. And that's what we'll be talking about this hour, and we want to hear from you. Are you providing care for a spouse, parent, or loved one with a health or disability issue? How are you faring? Share your story by sending an email to forum at kqed.org or post to our social channels. Now, let's get to our panel. Joining us this morning, I'm pleased to be joined by Christina Irving, the Client Services Director at the Family Caregiver Alliance. Welcome, Christina. Thank you for having me. We also have Wayne Meyer, an associate professor in the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at the UC Davis School of Medicine. Hi, Wayne. Hi, good morning. Yes. And finally, we have Kelly Dierman. She's the executive director of the Department of Disability and Aging Services, a division of the San Francisco Human Services Agency. Good morning, Kelly. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Uh, Christina, I wanted to start with you. I mean, most people would acknowledge that being a caregiver is not always easy, and the data tells that story. What have you learned about how caregivers in California are holding up? I think we've seen, especially in the last few years after dealing with COVID and all the changes in our systems and resources, that we've really seen that increase in stress and strain that caregivers have experienced. It's not new, but it's really been exasperated in these last few years by the additional challenges of navigating systems 
what services are available, um, the shortages in the direct care workforce. Caring for someone with a progressive or serious illness is hard enough in and of itself, but trying to do it within our kind of fractured systems just makes it that much more challenging. It really does, Christina, feel like caregiving falls between the cracks. Like we know we need it, but there's not much of a safety net available in healthcare. There is not. And if if we did not have the family, the friend caregivers who are stepping in to provide care, we would be in a world of trouble. Um, families are providing the majority of long-term care and they're doing it often at a detriment to their own health and well-being. Um, but we do not have the systems in place to fully support everybody who is in need of care without families. Well, Kelly Derman, you work in San Francisco specifically and working across the city. Are these issues that you have seen in the caregiving population? Absolutely. I think at DOS, we work really hard to disability and aging services. We work really hard to um, meet the needs of um our older adults and people with disabilities in the city. And it is true that we are facing a huge caregiver shortage, not just in California, but nationally. And so in California and in San Francisco, we're really lucky to have the in-home supportive services program, which uh, makes it possible for Medi-Cal eligible recipients uh, to receive uh, caregiving services um, at no cost or a very minimal cost to them, and they can hire anyone they want to provide these services. So we are doing what we can to stem the tide, but just like Christina was saying, it's really hard to find caregivers um, who want to do this really intimate and personal work, and caregivers aren't valued um, in my opinion, in society the way they should be. So not everyone will c- come to do this. So mm-hmm. it's very complicated. Well, and Christina, you mentioned that the pandemic has impacted the um, ability to provide care. How is it that we haven't really recovered from that? In some ways, it's it's hard to know. I think some of it is the long-term financial impact that certain resources and programs experienced. Adult day programs, if they couldn't have participants joining them in person, they weren't able to reimburse initially to Medi-Cal or, you know, the the private pay rates that they were receiving. And while they did really try and shift to offering virtual support, it's not the same. So we saw just that decrease in attendance, and that led to a number of programs closing. Um, And we saw that in other types of community resources as well. And then I think when you look at the direct care workforce that many family caregivers rely on to provide breaks or additional assistance, I think it raised some questions about people going into into homes, into hospitals, into nursing homes, and putting themselves at higher risk for very low pay. And is that really a field you want to be in? So we're still seeing that shortage of direct care workforce that impacts the type of support then that is available for family caregivers. Kelly Dearman, you're a caregiver yourself. I know you care for your parents. And I wonder if you could talk about um, that experience and what you found fulfilling and what has been hard. Sure. So I know that I'm in uh, a very lucky group because um, 
I live in a house with my parents and my husband and my kids. And my mom has had a chronic illness my whole life. And now late in her 80s, it is, um, you know, it's requiring more care. We're really fortunate that we have um, a caregiver who has been with us for over 13 years who works uh, with my mom. The thing for me is uh, it was really important that we set some boundaries when, when we moved in. And the deal was that I would do um, all of the administrative, finding a caregiver, making sure they're there, setting up doctor's appointments, getting all the food, all the administrative stuff. But I did not want to do the personal caregiving because for me it was really important that I can still be my mom's daughter and not her caregiver. Of course, obviously, if, if um, the caregiver is sick or things, I will step in and I do get support from my siblings and my extended family. So I know I'm really lucky. What has been great for us is to live in an intergenerational house, to have these conversations, to all be there together and get to know each other. I know that my parents are alive today because we were all in the house together during COVID. It would have been impossible um, if we were not living there. But yes, it is hard. It's, you know, you can't always um, arrange for going out. And when I go out of town, there's always a gigantic email about <laughs> all the things coming up. But um, I'd say the benefits for me definitely outweigh any, any pains. But I also recognize how fortunate we are to be able to have um, a caregiver come in during the day uh, to help my mom. Well, we spoke earlier, and I think you also mentioned that your husband, um, yeah. I mean, it's not easy, right? You're, you're moving right. in with your parents, and there's a conversation that has to happen, you know, with your husband. And I think it's been pretty good for him, too, because don't your parents always yes. take his side? <laughs> they always take his side. It has been good for him. And you're so right. Before we moved in, I said, well, I guess I better talk to him because, you know, he could say, no, I don't want to live with my in-laws. But um, I think my, I almost think my parents love him more than me, <laughs> uh, but I'm not sure because anytime there's an argument, they always take his side. But I, I know how fortunate I am. It's been a really, it's been a great experience for me. And the house is big enough to hold all of us. So we're also not on top of each other. Well, Wayne Meyer, I wanted to bring you in as well. Um, you are the Associate Professor of Alzheimer's Disease Research at the Research Center, and you're also a caretaker, um, a caretaker for your mom. What has that experience been like? You know, it's it's funny because I study this for a living. I've done a lot of research around caregiving and interventions, but it's completely different when you are a caregiver. And so uh, my mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease in 2015, and she eventually moved in with us, um, with my husband and two kids. And that was a very, very difficult time. So none of the research that I did prepared me. I think it prepared me a little bit. You know, you have an idea of what to expect, but until you're living with someone with Alzheimer's 24 hours a day, um, and working a full-time job. And, you know, part of that sandwich generation of caregivers, it's it's ridiculously hard. And it was very difficult during the pandemic and just, you know, hearing about, um, you know, Christina talking about those adult day services and, and um, day centers. You know, my mom did not want to wear a mask. She, when the, when the daycare center was still open, they had 
all of the participants and, you know, they were all older adults wear masks. And my, my mother who has Alzheimer's did not understand, um, not only because she didn't speak the language because she's uh, Vietnamese monolingual, but she didn't understand, um, you know, practically speaking why she needed to wear a mask. So it was a very difficult situation. Um, and, and as you mentioned, Grace, there are some some great positive reward, rewarding things about it. And, you know, I think Kelly alluded to that as well, but also it's a very, very challenging, um, challenging thing to be a caregiver. Yeah, it's certainly. And we're starting to even get comments about that. Pam writes, it's been shocking watching my dear friend who has serious disabilities and does not have family members to care for her. It seems like this whole system is set up with the assumption that everybody has a woman at home to care for them, a mother, a wife, a daughter. Wages from in-home supportive services are way too low, and it's impossible to find care. And I really think it comes down to how we devalue work that's traditionally done by women. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the care that caregivers need today and what the burdens and joys of caregiving are and the kind of support that's offered. We have Christina Irving, the Client Services Director for the Family Caregiver Alliance, Wayne Meyer, Associate Professor at the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at UC Davis School of Medicine, and Kelly Dierman, Executive Director of the Department of Disability and Aging Services, a division of the San Francisco Human Services Agency. We want to hear from you. Are you caring for a spouse, a parent, a loved one with a health or disability issue? What joys or unexpected moments of happiness have you had with that experience, and what kind of support do you wish you had? Or are you receiving care? What would you like the people who take care of you to know about their care of you? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can email us. We're at forum at kqed.org. Or find us on our social channels at KQED Forum. Twitter, Instagram, Digital Community on Discord, we're all there. I'm Grace Wan, in for Alexis Madrigal. More Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Grace Wan, in for Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the burdens and joys of caregiving and the kind of support that caregivers need. Many caregivers in the state of California report being depressed or severely lonely. Caregivers need care. And to tell more, tell us more about that, we have Wayne Meyer, the Associate Professor of Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at the UC Davis School of Medicine, Kelly Derman, Executive Director of the Department of Disability and Aging Services in San Francisco, and Christina Irving, the Client Service 
Services Director of the Family Caregiver Alliance. We want to hear from you. Are you caring for a spouse, a parent, a loved one with a health or disability issue? What's been good about that? What's been hard? Or are you receiving care? Would you like What would you like the people who take care of you to know about their care of you? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can email us at forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter, Instagram, Digital Communities, Discord. We're all there at KQED Forum. Uh, Before the break, we were talking about just the challenges of being a caregiver. And one thing that inspired us to put the show together was this New York Times article titled The Quiet Rage of Caregivers. Uh, Christina Irving, that's a headline that will catch your attention. And, you know, sometimes it can feel bad to be mad about caring for someone you love who's sick. Is it okay to express that rage? It's absolutely okay to feel that rage. I think when we're talking about expressing it verbally to friends, to a therapist and a support group, yes, obviously we want to make sure that the person you're caring for is safe, but it's a warning sign. I think feeling all the range of emotions, the the joy and the satisfaction, the frustration, the resentment, the anger, we are humans. We are allowed to feel that full range of emotions. But we want to take those as messages that often this is a sign of, I need more help. I need more support. This is not working for me. I cannot keep doing this in the same way. And look for what does that support look like for me? What do I need um, to feel better either about the situation or to look for other options in care so that it's not falling all on just that one primary caregiver? Mm. Kelly, you know, before the break, we heard from Pam, who was uh, commenting that it seems like caregiving often falls on women. I mean, what's your take on that? Do you think that that's accurate? Has that been your experience? So, yes, that has been my experience. And I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier, similar to what Pam was saying, is that, you know, caregiving is not valued like other professions are valued and and we do need to um, shine the light on on caregiving and the importance of it and how we are keeping so many people out of hospitals. We are keeping um, people at home so that they can live with some sense of dignity and pride. And we don't applaud that the way we should. And then at the same time, it does fall on so many women to have to do this work and how can we um, help? And so going uh, back to what Christina was saying, it's really important that some forms of respite care are available because this is really hard work. It's exhausting physically and emotionally. And if you're a really good friend or a family member watching, um, what is happening to your loved one. There's all kinds of emotions that go into that. And it's not just get up and go do your job for eight hours and then it goes away. It's something that stays with you. So there is a constant need for us to uplift the care um, caregivers and to recognize that caregivers do need respite. Hmm. Wayne, you know, one of your areas of study is making sure that caregiving is culturally competent. Um, and, you know, depending on how you grew up, the culture, the ethos that you grew up in, care can be looked very different. Um, tell us a little bit about that and how in your community, like even thinking about putting your mother in a nursing home is a tough decision to make. 
That was a tough decision. You know, she had lived with us for about six years and a lot of um, the Vietnamese culture, and I know other cultures as well, there's this expectation of filial piety that you never put your parent into a care home or nursing home, that it's your responsibility, you know, and I know this in a lot of my research with immigrants and refugee communities that they feel that their parent really sacrificed a lot to come to this country and um, to start over. And so in their older age, it's the expectation that the adult children take care of their family members. And I certainly felt that in my family. Um, but I think we were at a point where, you know, I was losing my mind, mm. <laughs> to be frank. And it was very tough. And I talked about it with my sister. I talked about it with my um, aunts. And um, it was the right decision. And, um, and I think that a lot of people don't feel that it is the right decision. But and I think it's navigating those family dynamics that can be really tough for caregivers, um, especially caregivers from um, ethnically diverse populations, navigating caregiving that often happens between and among multiple siblings and getting everybody on the same page about what is the best type of care and is this the right decision to make. And I think it takes a lot of um, grace for, for, you know, for oneself, but also for each other to come to that decision. Mm, really good advice. Uh, let's hear from a listener, Mary from San Francisco. Thanks for calling Forum, and um, tell us about your story. Yeah, I've been, I have been, uh, my husband was, uh, had two heart attacks and then was diagnosed with cordial basal degeneration, which is a type of Parkinson's. And so the first five years were, you know, I would have to drive him everywhere and help him walk, and uh, that was bad enough. But um, he went into hospice care, I think about nine or ten months ago, and so I do have a part-time caregiver. But what what is overwhelming for me is everything else. So I do take care of him about 21 hours a day, but... Uh, the time that I have to take care of his old business, to sell all the cars, to sell the parts, to manage our regular home. You know, last night the water heater went out. I've got two tenants there. Um, we had to put in a new septic system, $45,000. Mm. We're trying to do an ADU. I'm managing all of the permits. Before I do the ADU, I had to get this red tag off the roof. I mean, it is... There's no moment in the day that I am not working on something in addition to changing his diaper and getting his pills and using the sucky machine. And, mm. you know, it is, it's, it's, yeah, you lose your, you lose your brain. You, yeah. you, you are in a flutter, always in a flutter. Um, mm. He has six daughters. Not one comes to help. My daughter comes to help a little bit. Mm. Um, I was able to go out to dinner for the first time in about three and a half years the other night. Mm. Three and a half years, I haven't had a dinner and a drink. You know, it was the most magical feeling. So, I mean, I have the money. Yeah, Mary, that is just... Mary, you are handling a lot, and it's, I mean, obviously doing so well by your husband, who's so lucky to have you. I mean, Christina, Mary has 
three, four full-time jobs on her plate right now. What kind of support is available to somebody like Mary? Kelly mentioned this earlier as well, things like respite care. There may be funding, um, varies a little bit by county, um, by eligibility for programs, but funds that can help pay for in-home help to give families a break. Um, If people are able to afford to pay for care, it's possible to bring in help on a short-term basis. That does provide some assistance. It doesn't necessarily tackle all the 10 million other things that caregivers like Mary are doing around the house and for their business and, you know, paying their bills and dealing with the healthcare system. Um, Family and friends, trying to engage them and get them to help. And, And I think what Mary highlighted is all too common is that there often are other family members who could help and are not. Um, sometimes they just don't know how to. And if we can ask really directly and clearly, we may be able to engage them. And some never will. They'll have lots of advice and suggestions, but they may not ever actually step in to provide care. Um, But trying to connect to those services that do exist to get help, to bring in care, to at least take certain tasks off of your very, very long to-do list. Yeah, I would imagine that giving yourself the break and not feeling, you know, if you can, I mean, Mm -hmm. for Mary to have a dinner out for the first time in three years, I mean, that seems like a lot um, Mm -hmm. of burden. I mean, Kelly, how do you find that space to take care of yourself? You work full time, you're taking care of both your parents, you have some help, um, but how do you find space for yourself and not feel bad about that? Uh, Well, it's really hard. And um, I just want to say to Mary that that I totally see you and hear you, and I'm and this this is a horrible situation for you, um, but totally agree that how lucky is your husband to have you um, doing this? So sometimes it means you just have to take the space because you are one person and you can't. You, I mean, this is, you've been, sounds like you've been doing this for several years and one person cannot do it all. Now I know you're saying, well, I can't not do it. So I get that, but I, I think you're going to have to, we, we really need to figure out how you can, how you can take some space and set some boundaries because um, what happens so often to many caregivers is they get burnt out or they get sick because they haven't been able to take any time for themselves and to take a moment for themselves. So I, um, um, I'm with Christina that I think if we can find some respite programs for you, that just might be a few hours uh, just to take a moment to breathe that's really important for me. Um, what it means for me is I try to leave. Um, I, you know, we'll try to go on vacation and you know, that sounds like a pipe dream, but also, um, I just think it's important to take some time for yourself because this is, this is already running you down and it's only going to get worse. Mm. Well, Alyssa, I'll say that I'm kind of mad at this, at the, (laughs) 
That is children. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, a listener writes, my dear friend has MS, multiple sclerosis. She's homebound and completely disabled. Luckily, her husband can work from home. They're not wealthy, but make too much money to qualify for Medi-Cal. So they don't qualify for Alameda's in-home support care, but they can't afford to hire a caregiver on their own. I and many friends try to help her and her husband. Are there any services for people in their situation? And Christina, where could um, a family like this go to get support services? I mean, it's I think most people fall into this category of like make a little bit too much for Medi-Cal, but certainly don't have enough to have in-home care. Absolutely. And I think that's where our system is is really falling short, is this kind of missing middle um, of people who don't meet the criteria for Medi-Cal and can't afford to pay for care. That's really where the caregiver resource centers um, in California kind of originated was to try and provide services for that gap. So Family Caregiver Alliance is the Bay Area Caregiver Resource Center. Um, and that is kind of our, our mission and our goal is to support those family caregivers with conditions like MS and other cognitive or neurological conditions um, to try and provide some supports. And there are funds for respite grants they're limited. They're nowhere near enough what families actually need. And often that is the only way people get any sort of break. So while it's better than nothing, there's still so much more as a society we need to be doing to support family caregivers, um, but also people living with these chronic and serious health conditions. Mm. Let's go back to the phone. Melanie from San Francisco, thanks for joining us on Forum. What's your story? Thanks. I just um, wanted to bring up about and underscore the financial hit that often happens with caregivers. I um, lived in the Bay Area for 35 years, and my mother back in the Midwest in Missouri, in rural Missouri, had a stroke. And we're very, very close. And I, I went to care for her with the remote contract in hand, and then COVID started, and I lost the contract. Um, and I want to bring up about siblings, because I turned to my brother and saying, can we get in care? And he said, in rural America, you know, there's hardly any care plus COVID. But he said, I could, I could take care of you financially. And I basically said, and this is where I want to emphasize. I said, well, not while well, mom's with us, you know, afterward that money's in the estate. But when she passed, he reneged. Mm. I mean, that's... and I'm still recovering. Oh. I'm still recovering, and I don't know if what you would recommend, because these are icky conversations to have around finances of caring for your parents. And this is just my mother. She had had the stroke, but then she went into MRSA during COVID and ultimately passed a year and a half later. But, you know, the financial and emotional of you, you talked about feeling devalued um, for my own brothers and perhaps the community, I don't know, to, to look to just expect that the only daughter is supposed to step in and do this. And the, our final speaking words was him telling me it was my choice. Mm. And again, I don't know if this is happening with other caregivers, with their siblings, but how to navigate that and mm. how to navigate this is very difficult conversation on finances. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, that is, anyway. I mean, it adds to the, I mean, the heartbreak of losing your mom than to have these issues with your sibling. I mean, Wayne Meyer, in in terms of how families address these issues, I mean, it's just caretaking for the person, but they see it also can expose cracks or create new cracks in families. How have you seen that in your research uh, play out? 
Yeah, I think this is a great point. And I think more and more, I mean, women are the primary caregivers for a lot of, um, in a lot of families and a lot of situations. But I think more and more that's starting to change a little bit from what I've seen. And in my own um, intervention work that I've done with caregivers, we invite multiple family members to, um, to, to the intervention that we did a few years ago, because we know that um, a lot of times it's the family dynamics that are really hard to navigate in addition to the caregiving that you're already doing. So I think as much as possible, if there are programs and services that are available that can, you know, have a family meeting with, with multiple people, because sometimes it's not effective for the primary caregiver to speak to their sibling or to speak to their other family members. But if it can be in a setting where there's a, you know, a social worker or another professional who can help um, kind of address the entire family and what's going on. I think that sometimes that's uh, easier to hear and, um, and understand than it coming from your sibling. So I know, for example, when we were really trying to figure out care for my mom, I had to um, really push our primary care physician to be the one to advocate for certain things like my mom moving in with us because she didn't want to, and but we knew that she had to. So I think if we can use outside resources, um, you know, and I think the Alzheimer's Association, the Caregiver Resource Centers, even our um, Alzheimer's Disease Research Center have classes and have workshops and support groups where they talk about this, um, this topic and how to, how to navigate it. I think if caregivers can, um, can, you know, utilize these great resources. I think that there are some great ideas out there. Mm. Well, we're talking about the challenges of caregiving and the kind of support that caregivers themselves need. We're talking with Christina Irving, the Client Services Director from the Family Caregiver Alliance, Kelly Derman, the Executive Director of the Department of Disability and Aging Services in San Francisco, and Wayne Meyer, Associate Professor of Alzheimer's Disease Research, Research Center at the UC Davis School of Medicine. We want to hear from you, your stories about caring for a spouse, parent, or loved one with a health or disability issue, what's been challenging, what's been good, and are you receiving care? What would you like the people who take care of you to know about their care of you? You can email us at forum at kqed.org or call us at 866-733-6786. I'm Grace Wan, in for Alexis Madrigal. More Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Grace Wan in for Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about taking care of caregivers and what the caregivers in our lives need to be more supported. We're joined by Wayne Meyer. She's the associate professor of all at the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at UC Davis School of Medicine. Kelly Derman, the executive director of the Department of Disability and Aging Services in San Francisco, and Christina Irving, client services director at the Family Caregiver Alliance. We're hearing your stories about taking care of your loved ones. What's been good, what's been hard. You're, you can email us at forum at kqed.org, or you can call us at 866-733-6786. Let's go to Ed in Nevada City. Ed, thanks for calling Forum. Hi. Um, I've been doing this 25 years. Started with my dad uh, in 98 and uh, found got re- referrals to other people. And uh, I've had probably 30 clients over the last 25 years, maybe more, uh, some until their death uh, from Alzheimer's and Parkinson's particularly. But uh, I found that in this time that the, the real care isn't to the, the individual who's afflicted, it's to the family. I provide time for the family to get away and do things that they want to do that's going to reinvigorate them so that they have stamina to last. Because when the families pass or when the families stop doing it, the client dies. Mm. And that's a really bad thing to see, really sad. Yeah, I think uh, that's, I mean, Ed, you are doing what we're talking about, providing that respite care that'll allow the family caregivers to sustain themselves and to, you know, it's a, a bit of a cliche, but it seems like it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. So taking care of yourself is so, so important. And Alana writes, there are several good parts of my caregiving experience. One is the online support group started through WellSpouse, a national group for spousal caregiving. We meet every other week, and our support for each other is deep and very helpful. The other indispensable indispensable aid is Easy Does It, a nonprofit in Berkeley who can send an attendant out to pick my husband up when he falls on the floor, which occurred last night, and for which I am eternally grateful. Though I am quote-unquote retired, the fact is I have a 24-hour job, so these services are indispensable in keeping me sane. I mean, it does seem, Kelly Dearman, that the support groups that are out there are critical for maintaining caregivers, both mental and physical health. Can you talk a little bit about the kinds of support groups a person can find? Sure. So um, in San Francisco, uh, you know, a respite program can take on many different things, whether that's education for the caregiver, whether that is um, these online support groups that we're talking about, or it could be um, using um, an adult day program, which can provide some aid to um, adults or people with disabilities, which gives the caregiver um, a break. And there are also services like Easy Does It in San Francisco that has volunteers who will come and um, run errands, run errands for you, or um, help you with those really necessary things so you can take a moment. So um, we work really hard uh, in San Francisco to try to figure out. Um, how can we help the caregivers? And we have such programs as um, Self-Help for the Elderly provides um, training for caregivers. There are other um, organizations that do the same. 
But if you are in San Francisco and need services in San Francisco, we'd really um, think that it's important for you to get in touch with our one-stop shop that can answer questions and give you referrals to other services that are available because we understand and appreciate that what you are doing is really hard work and you need some assistance. And is there a website that you could offer or a phone number, Kelly? Sure. The phone number is 415-355-6700. Great. Uh, and Christina, I mean, your organization covers more than just San Francisco. It, it, the, it covers the counties of the Northern California. What other support groups or, or places to go are there for, for caregivers who need more help, both for themselves and to learn more about caregiving? I mean, I would encourage people to reach out to your local caregiver resource center, um, Family Caregiver Alliance in the Bay Area. But throughout California, there is a caregiver resource center that can at least direct people to what are the programs where they live. So they can go to caregivercalifornia.org and find the caregiver resource center where they are. There are support groups all over the place, either through the caregiver resource centers, through disease-specific organizations like the Alzheimer's Association, Stroke Association, um, Huntington's Disease Association, through some of the adult day programs, senior centers, hospitals, um, well spouse was mentioned earlier, healing circles, patients like me. There's lots of different groups that are either online or might be really local in person. And so, you know, some caregivers will say, I'm not a group person. I don't know if that's for me. I'd encourage people try it. You don't have to go for forever. But to hear from other caregivers and realize that you are not alone, that these experiences you're going through are, even the really difficult ones are sadly more common than you might realize. And I think there's so much that caregivers can learn from each other. Mm. You know, Wayne, is the... Is caregiving different if you're caring for a spouse versus a parent versus another loved one or friend? I mean, are the demands different on you? Is the toll different? You know, there's been um, a lot of research on um, on caregiving, and my area of expertise is dementia caregiving, so I'll just speak to that. But there's some research suggesting that um, people who are caring for their spouse with dementia that they face more burden and more stress than adult children caregivers. But I really think it varies. I think it varies on, you know, how much support you have, uh, the the um, amount of resources that you have, and whether or not the care is um, in-home, whether or not you're doing remote caregiving. There's so many different um, situations and circumstances that, um, that can occur in the context of caregiving. So I think it really varies. I know that I, I want to um, just highlight what Christina said, that there are so many resources. When I was caregiving for my mom, when she was living with us, I was not a support group person, but I will completely agree with her that I, I want to encourage people to give it a shot. Some people don't have time to go to support groups, even the online support groups. And what I have um, given to our caregivers is um, suggested you, YouTube has a host of videos from UCLA that has really specific strategies for how to mm. deal with your loved one when they don't want to take a bath, when they refuse to eat, when they, you know, um, pace nervously or, or anxious. So I would also encourage people who 
um, maybe don't have the time or, or desire to join support groups at this moment to go online to YouTube and look at the various videos that are that are out there by UCLA and other groups that um, can provide those resources, whether or not um, you're an adult care, child caregiver or a spousal caregiver. I think those are really helpful. Yeah. I mean, Kelly Dearman, you know, we're talking a lot about the lack of caregivers, literally people, you know, people, it's a low paying job in in most circumstances, and people may not want to do that job. How do you see that pipeline getting better over time? So I think it goes back to something I said earlier, I, you know, we have to start valuing caregivers and the work that they do. And I will say that it's not only, you know, there's a national caregiver crisis and the federal government is fine, is taking this up and recognizing that um, the population is aging, people are living longer, and so we can't ignore the fact that caregivers are needed. And in San Francisco, um, we're really fortunate that our in-home supportive services program pays um over $20 an hour for caregivers, which is still, we totally get it, not enough, but it is one of the highest page or the highest page paying wage um, in the state um, for the in-home supportive services program. But we are working on doing more training, uh, doing more outreach. It's really important that we have culturally appropriate uh, caregivers. And, and so we are working really hard to encourage uh, people to join uh, the caregiver profession. I think that's what we should start, we need to call it. And trying to figure out for people, um, you know, that there should be a pipeline. If you have been caregiving for the past X number of years, that doesn't mean you've been doing nothing. You've been working really hard and maybe this now you want to do more of this. And so we're working on the educational pipeline, but also so that employers can recognize saying that you're a caregiver does not mean that you haven't been working. You've been working really hard. And so it's all about changing the attitudes, um, uplifting the values and reminding people that, you know, without all of these caregivers doing this work, where would we all be? Exactly. Let's go to the phones. Ralph in San Jose, thanks for joining Forum. Hi. Uh, I just wanted to talk about Medi-Cal a little bit because uh, it sounds like, uh, and I was the same, uh, people are un- going under the impression that uh, they may just be in that middle spot where they're not you know, poor enough and yet they're not exactly equipped financially to you know, pay what needs to be paid for outside care. I was a caregiver for almost 10 years for my husband had a stroke. Um, and it got to the point where I had my own mini TIA stroke. And uh, my sister and her, his daughter decided that um, I can't do this anymore. And there's a lot of reasons. Anyway, what I decided to do, I mean, I have a friend who's a medical navigator, and he helped with uh, researching Medi-Cal. It was a dead end. Uh, the income requirements were uh, ridiculously low. Uh, and so uh, it turns out <clears throat> we had been talking with a lawyer for a while about this, and all of a sudden, one communication with her, she said, Medi-Cal has just completely, the, 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 the requirements had not changed for probably 20 years. All of a sudden, from $2,000 in assets, it went up to 130000 mm. 
we applied. We applied and got Medi-Cal approval within a month. Wow. And that made all the difference. It did not help with assisted living. It's only skilled nursing. Mm. But the skilled nursing bill went down from $10,000 a month, which I had to get a home equity line of credit, which is blown off a long time ago. Uh, and also, uh, it, it, it went down to $1,500 a month copay. Mm. Well, and this was all about Medi-Cal. Mm. I'm glad that there's a happy story that comes out of that. I mean, Christina, it sounds yeah, like absolutely. It, it sounds like in Ralph's case, just having a friend even help you navigate the process um, and the paperwork can be helpful. Absolutely. And thank you so much for sharing that. It is always nice to hear the stories of things that went well. Um, but I think that's where it's really important to seek out these resources, these professionals who understand and know how to navigate these really complicated and messy systems. We are not set up for people to be able to do this on their own. Unfortunately, um, you often need to find these professionals, whether it's a social worker, uh, an elder law attorney, a case manager, somebody who can help people tease apart what these resources are. There have been changes to Medi-Cal in recent years that have increased and actually now eliminated the asset limit. There are still income limits, but for spousal caregivers or domestic partners, there are um, some ways that they can maintain additional income for that well spouse or well partner. Um, but again, it's messy. It's complicated. We don't have a seamless system that people can get through. So reaching out for help early, um, connecting to those professionals who understand these systems can be really important to, to make sure that you're able to access the resources and benefits that are available for you. Mm. I mean, if you, it's hard to plan for these type of events, um, but are there things one can do um, before the care becomes necessary, conversations that you can have with a spouse or a loved one before you get into this um, situation, Christina? Absolutely. And, and yes, these are not easy conversations and we don't know exactly what the needs are going to be, but starting them really early, whether again, you've got a parent, a spouse, a partner, maybe siblings, but to be able to say, you know, if at a certain point you couldn't be fully independent and you needed some care, what would you want? What would that look like? Um, to be able to talk about what sort of financial resources are available. And that can be tricky in certain families. Those are things you do not talk about. Um, but we all, I think, as a society, often have this belief that we are going to be fully independent until the day we die peacefully in our sleep. Um, and that, unfortunately, is not the reality for most people. We are all going to live with some level of disability, need for assistance, need for care, and so starting these conversations early and realizing that it's going to be a process, you're unlikely to be able to have one conversation that just resolves all of it. Um, but to start having those discussions before anyone actually needs care. Mm. Well, Scott writes, my two brothers and I cared for our very independent mother for years until Alzheimer's took her life. Was it a humbling honor to take care of her after years of her doing even more for us? Yes. Was it also a miserable pain to talk to insurance companies and deal with a person that changed by the day? Also, yes. 
And Marsha writes, having cared for three elders in, the la- in their last years, want to live in situation for six years, the most difficult thing about elder care is that the timeline is very much unknowable. When raising babies, there's a developmental trajectory that gives parents the sense of moving toward autonomy. Not so with old age. I had a friend who at age 50 moved in to care for her 70-year-old mother who was infirm and gradually bedridden. 20 years later, at age 70, she is still doing it and has not really had a life for two decades. I mean, these are tough situations for people who have to do kind of long-term care for uh, a loved one. I mean, Kelly, what advice do you have having taken care of um, your family members and also, you know, making this your professional um, area of expertise? Well, I think my biggest piece of advice is the earlier you can have the conversations, the better. And I totally get that you you don't always know when things are going to happen. And um, to really think about yourself and, and think about setting boundaries for yourself, because, right, it can t- totally take over your, your whole life, which it does for many people. I would also say, and I'm sorry to have to be so San Francisco specific, but um, it would be really important to reach out to our one-stop shop because we can help you with those benefits, the caregiver services, the respite care, and let you know what is available out there. But really, the biggest piece of advice is to not forget about yourself in this whole process because we really need you here, and what you are doing is is it feels impossible much of the time, but I am super grateful to um, my parents um, and to my husband because I think we have really made this work and what I've given my kids is an opportunity to get their, get to know their grandparents in a way that doesn't happen all of the time. But just please know that we, you know, we see you, all of you who are out there doing this work and we Thank you for um, giving such great quality of life to the people that you care for. Well, such good advice from our guests. We've been talking about taking care of the caregivers with Wayne Meyer, the Associate Professor of Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at the UC Davis School of Medicine. Christina Irving, Client Services Director at the Family Caregiver Alliance. Definitely look that website up. It's got a lot of great resources. And Kelly Derman, the Executive Director of the Department of Disability and Aging Services in San Francisco, also a super source for information. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Grace Wan, in for Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.